0: Canadians. (laughs) All right. Okay, so let's do a really quick review, and I think we can do this pretty quickly, but I do think it's super important. In this particular book especially, I think, context um, can be a key that's going to unlock enlightenment and understanding about some of these really challenging passages. It seems to me like the more I study, the more I I mean, I have have gone online, one of the things I did have opportunity to do, because I wasn't at home and able to open the scriptures and do the work in the way I normally would do it, Um, I took advantage of online, and I, I mean, I I found some wackos out there too, by the way, (laughs) but I went online and I found sermon after sermon after sermon on Hebrews, and in particular trying to focus in on some of these difficult passages in 6 and 10, which are gonna, which are ahead. But then trying to make myself have that discipline of pulling back again and putting it uh, down into the flow of thought and his intended pers- uh, purpose for this particular audience and who they are. So I think it's important for us to make sure that we hold fast to reviewing and refreshing our minds about who these people are and um, why this is being written to them at this particular time in history. Because I think that's very influential on how we're going to interpret some of these difficult spots. So let's do our normal review, author. Who is our author? Unknown. There you go. Very easy one to handle. Unknown. And you know what? I'm really very happy to say that um, that we've been able to kind of release that, you know, to say we don't know for sure. We can have some speculations about it, but the unknown part is simply unknown if God doesn't give it to us. Now, one of the thing, one of the online things I did was with Dr. David Jeremiah, yeah, and yeah, he he's very good. And um, I went through, and he talked about the author and gave some additional little insights, but he pulled them directly from Hebrews and then took. To cross, took us to cross referencing, but primar- But in the end, guess what his conclusion was? Author is unknown, <laughs> and I loved that about him. The, he maintained integrity in, it, and he said, "Okay, we can speculate this or that." What he did was, he, in order to pacify some people who are so dogmatic about certain interpretations on things. Um, He wanted to address some of those things. Yeah, but this. Yeah, but this. So he went in and he said, yes, it does say this, and yes, it does say that. So it was really interesting. So if you're interested, Dr. David Jeremiah has an online overview for Hebrews. So you could actually just Google Google David Jeremiah Hebrews overview YouTube, and you'll get to hear him discuss. But he'll do exactly what we have done here, and he comes up with exactly the same conclusions that we do so we see the, that that this author is unknown we know that um, concerning him how did his salvation come to him that's right so he heard it from those who had received the gospel directly from the Lord but he himself did not receive it directly from the Lord so I think I think that one is a very big clue as to possibly who he's not <laughs> right it eliminates and that's in chapter 2 verse 3 that statement um, at the close of Hebrews in chapter 13 we get a few really nice character points of, about who this man is does anybody kind of remember um, about the heart of this author and what it's, what seems to be driving him Okay, he has a great desire to be ret- re- returned to them. So, we know that he's had an established relationship with these people before. Okay? He knows Timothy. Yes, he does know Timothy. And um, it talks about Timothy being released from prison. And so, we know kind of in the timeline of things of where this might be in reference to that one point. Okay? Okay, and he makes greetings to those who um, are in Italy, right? Okay. Um, One of the ones that I liked the best was in uh, 1318, just in case you want to flip there. He speaks about the fact that he has a good conscience and he desires to conduct himself honorably in all things. Isn't that awesome? I love that, that as he's writing this book, his highest desire is that he honor the Lord in it and that his conscience be clear at the end of it, which means um, in the book, in the, particularly to this book's message, it means that he is also saying, look, I have to be brave enough to challenge you all with some of these challenging things where I'm calling your feet to the fire. And uh, sometimes as Christians, it's just as important that we do say the tough things with our fellow brethren, right? Because not doing that then doesn't leave you with a good conscience. If you allow your brother or sister to remain in sin or to remain in waywardness, or to remain in, in anything that would dishonor the Lord and his name and your calling, then that would not leave him in, in a uh, clear conscience before the Lord. And so he, he mentions that. All right, so that's our author. Now, our literary style, what kind of a literary style do we have here? It is a letter, and it's a very interesting letter, isn't it? The way that it kind of lays itself out. It opens um, with um, warnings and rebukes and exhortations and instructions. Uh, we see kind of a, almost a, a little, what did Jeremiah say? He said something about it being, um, opens as an essay, Then he speaks about the middle portion, the majority of it, as being like a series of sermons. And then he says, then it concludes very clearly as a letter. So it is a letter. And what is the author's major purpose in this writing? Do you remember what the verse is on that? It is a letter of exhortation. Let's get that up there. Uh, Author unknown, his purpose is to exhort now in exhortation what kinds of things does that encompass does that just mean a pat on the back yeah. okay what else does it mean Warnings. okay warnings and boy have our we've already seen a lot of that haven't we just when we did our overview we kept hitting on those places where it talks about them to to be careful and to pay much closer attention and so forth all right so we have lots of warnings and then what else Okay, exhortation, which would be the encouragement verses, right? And challenging them, really calling them to higher grounds. We're going to especially see that when we hit chapter 6, aren't we? We're not quite there, but in chapter 6, he talks about where they are and where they should be, right? And he's really challenging them to grow up in this faith that they are in, okay? Um, let's go through real quickly because I think it will be helpful. Let's do the, f- the flow of thought thus far. What has been presented to us so far in this? So in chapter 1, what did we see given to us? What, what is the major subject for the book, by the way? Jesus. And how is Jesus being portrayed throughout this whole book? As better than all kinds of things, right? Is there any um, major emphasis when it comes to the, the things that he's better than that kind of you could, you could kind of bring it down to one word? He's just better than what? The Old Covenant, the Old, better than the Old Covenant. I'm sorry, Diane, it wasn't a trick question. You got it exactly correct. She's like, oh, I'm not sure what she's wanting there, huh? Okay, yes. So better than that Old Covenant. Now, in Chapter 1, we see him as better than what? Okay. Why? How is he better than angels in one? He is God. Okay, and we can make a long, long list, but he is God, he's the begotten, he's the king, right? He's going to come back and rule and reign, he's a king, his throne is forever and ever, right? Okay, so that's in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, what is he? Better than. Well, in chapter two, he, he becomes man, right? In chapter two, we see him that he is presented to us as the Son of man, right? the Son of God, and that he is, in essence, better than man, because why? What does he do for man? Yeah. He's the savior of men. So you can I just put better than men, or better than man, although he is man. He's our Savior, Savior of man, right? To give help to man. That's exactly right. And so you can put, if you want to continue with your, um, you know, with those, uh, those guidelines in doing inductive Bible study, you really should pull the words directly from the text if possible, right? So uh, some of these things that I'm putting up here, I'm just trying to show you the flow of thought, so I'm I'm being much less strict on that. Um, I'm not taking us back through your your at-a-glance chart per se. Kay asked you though to pull out your at-a-glance chart, right, and review what you remember about the flow of thought and about each of the chapters and how they break down. And so I'm just trying to do that for us right now, up through chapter four, where we where we ended uh, ended at the at close of chapter or part one of our study. So, okay. So better than the angels, better than man, better than angels because he is God. He is King. He is the Begotten. Better than man because he's man's savior, the one who can give help to man, right? Chapter 3, who is he better than? Moses. Better than Moses. And why is that an important statement? Because they have been following the law of Moses. That's right, they have been. And in Chapter 3, the, there's a major key subject in there about the calling, correct? There's all kinds of words in there about if you hear his voice today, right? And it introduces at the beginning that it's a heavenly calling, right? And then it's contrasted then with Moses, how Moses came, but when he came, how did he come? What was his ministry of calling? As the servant, and it was simply as a testimony of the things which would be coming later. Showing us that what was coming later was going to be a better testimony, Right? A better message, a better calling. Chapter 1 actually opens us with the very same point, doesn't it? Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 gives us what insight about what was com- and compared to what is now? Okay, he had spoken through the prophets, and now he speaks how? Through the Son. Okay, so to me... The fact that he actually starts with that, the more and more I go back over this, the more I am seeing that this is actually the pivotal point, he starts with it, that teaches us and shows us what this entire book is about. It's about the comparison of the two. What was versus what is. And it's also going to give us a very strong clue as to what some of these points are that he's making, which seem a little confusing to us. If you get into the mindset of what a Jewish man or woman understood concerning salvation, concerning faith walk with God, if we can really nail that down in our minds, then I think then if you remember that in every single chapter he's making a comparison of what was versus what is, then we can continue with that flow of thought that when we hit these difficult passages, we can say, yes, but what did they think? about the subject that we're looking at here under the old system. And how is he comparing that to what we have now, which is so much better, right? Okay, so we have better than Moses because it's a better calling. It's a heavenly calling. Uh, Now, the last one that we looked at uh, as far as homework that is completed was in chapter 4. And what did we see in chapter 4? Well, we see the first mention of a great high priest. Well, what is the major subject in chapter 4? The rest. The rest of God, exactly. So in, in that rest, what kind of rest is it? It is a salvation rest. How is it compared? What was the old rest that was given to them as the imagery or the picture? Moses. Moses. Okay, there was a land that they were going to approach, and it was called the land of rest, right? Previous to that, we also had another rest that had been given to them as a picture, and what was that? The Sabbath rest. So Israel had already been given two rests pictorially, right? That they would understand God's true rest when it came. The first one was the Sabbath rest, and what did that teach them? That it was the work was finished. Come on, you guys. Pitch in here. <laughs> Poor Carrie is really working hard to draw you in. It is, <laughs> it is the, the finished work of God. Remember, even in chapter 4, he makes this statement. Go into chapter 4 um, and look at the end of verse 3. He talks about those that need to enter the rest, they need to do so, they need to unite what they've heard, which is the, the gospel of the good news, unite that faith, right, with obedience, and therefore enter God's rest through it, right? And he says, not, now you're not entering in because you are obedient, but the obedience shows that your faith was genuine and that you did enter in, Correct. We we really clearly, I think, have kind of beat that one up, but I want to keep stating it because you don't want to ever go back or regress back to say that it's the works that got them saved. It's the faith that got them saved. It's the works that prove that they actually have that faith. Okay, but he finishes saying that now they've entered into that rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So the rest of God was a work that was finished from the foundation of the world. And so if you are a Hebrew person, as these are, and they are making a comparison between the old rest that they understood and and practiced, and he's saying now you're entering into a new rest that's found in Jesus who is better. It's not only a better rest, but it is the intended rest. It is the real true rest that God intended for man to have, to enter into that rest relationship because what was done for them? The work. So now they rest in Christ, Christ who did, the, who did the work and is the work, right? All right, so chapter 4, a better rest, which is found in Jesus. Okay. All right, now the recipients. Who are these recipients? Okay. Now, how do we know that? And that is true. How do we know they're Hebrew? Just give us some clues. <laughs> the, name <of> the, book. <laughs> the name of the book. Okay, well, that's, a, that's kind of, yeah, that's a little cheap. By the way, Dr. David Jeremiah, on his thing, said to, to us that the name of that book was not actually given until the second century. It was not even titled before the second century. Before that, it had no title. That's interesting, huh It is. It doesn't tell who it's through, you know. Nope. It doesn't tell us who it's to, and it doesn't give us a title, but how do we know that the title they chose, Hebrews, is a, a good title for it?
1: The subject in it, they're familiar with the law, they're, yeah. they're tempted to go back in and worship under the law. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. The fact that there's so many references to the law in all its various factions, the priesthood, the law, the covenants, and so forth, right? Any other clues? Right, so it does speak about their fathers, and in relationship to that, it draws them back into Father David, Father Moses, Father Abraham, eventually, right? All right. Another One other clue that's really big is about the quoting. Where is Where do all the quotes come from? Old Testament. Old Testament. You know, it's really interesting is in Acts, we see De, um, Paul, when he goes to Athens, and he makes some quotes, he starts quoting the the poets and the, the, uh, what do you call it, the apostolic, not the apostolic, the um, the stoic um, philosophers and so forth. But in this book, the quotes come from those whom these people consider to be the the rock-solid, authorities about life and about God. And the quotes over and over and over, all from the Old Testament. So all those things accumulatively together give us the understanding this is absolutely a book written to Hebrew-minded people. These are Hebrews. Although I would not say exclusively there's no one else there, I would never say that. But he doesn't seem to address it at all. He only addresses the Hebrew. That's, so that's what we're interested in looking at. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, so he's and he's yes. About the I mean, again, back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, before he spoke to, to long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So he makes that reference right away at the very opening of chapter 1. All right. So concerning them, we know then the recipients are Hebrews. We see the Old Testament quotes. We see the, um, the Old Covenant references over and over. We see the Fathers referenced. Oop, there we go. Okay, super. Okay, now recipients. Now here's, here's one part that's a little bit trickier. It seems totally straightforward. But let's look at these recipients. Primarily, would you say these are saved or unsaved? Both, (laughs) Both. Saved and unsaved? Yes and yes. (laughs) Both. (laughs) Okay. Now, primarily, however, how does he address them as saved, as a congregation who is saved? Because his major emphasis is he is writing to a congregation who at least by claim, apparently, are Christians. They claim to be Christians, right? Are there some references in here that make that really clear to us that you can recall? Did you guys do your your review on context when you did it? Did you go back? Okay, Uh, let me take you to a couple of verses. Go to chapter 3, verse 1 how is How are they ad, uh, addressed here? Holy brethren. Holy brethren. okay? And? They're partakers of a heavenly calling. So they have partaken of this heavenly calling, and they said, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of what? Our confession. So these are people who are confessing Jesus, right? All right, so they're confessors of Jesus, they're partakers of that heavenly calling. And they are holy brethren. So that gives us a very strong statement that, the, that he is speaking to a church. Um, in 1039, flip over to 1039. Somebody read that for me because I don't have that right in front of me. Okay, now to me, this is a super important point to be brought up. You believers, you Hebrew believers that I'm addressing, you are not of those who shrink back to the destruction of, so, of your soul. Now, that is clearly saying that he's, he is confident that they are not going to be those who have not partake, partaken fully of that gift of God, that they are not in the faith. They are not going to go to a destruction of their soul. This is not talking about destruction just of the body as in discipline. This is speaking about the soul, right? So there he's saying, I don't believe that of you. I'm believing of you that you are partakers of the heavenly calling, that you are the holy brethren, and that you are those who have faith to the preserving of what? The preserving of your soul. So uh, to me, that's a very strong, clear statement that he's at least addressing them as a congregation of believers. Now, this is very, very common in Scripture, and we see it everywhere. And and, um, in many of the uh, uh, lectures that I listened to through these last few weeks, um, almost all of them have gone to many places in scriptures, but one of the ones they hit on regularly is the one I had thought of, which was in uh, Revelation, where it's the letters to the churches, and the address is to a church, and yet there's warning in it, right, warning, 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 examine yourself, basically, right, okay, so that takes us then to the next part, it is a congregation, he's addressing them as the holy brethren, and yet are there a lot of warnings in here, what kind of warnings are they? Okay. The warning is: you must be holding fast. You are Christ's household if you are holding fast. In other words, there needs to be an evidential quality to your life. And if there is not, what might you be in danger of falling away? Falling away or having, and, and in that falling away, then we see po- the possibility of two ways of looking at that. We're going to hopefully develop it more more fully as we go along here, but. Just in general, what do you think that's talking about? What kind of falling away? Okay, so if you're not saved, then you would be going further away, falling back away. In other words, you have have been amongst the brethren and have heard of these, uh, uh, the um, the gospel of the good news, right? And you've... You've participated in that body of Christ, and yet apparently maybe have not fully embraced it. Now, that's a potential. That is one possibility, we have to lay it out on the table um, and just say, well, maybe that's what it means, okay? Maybe it's talking about an unbeliever who's just participating in the church, and and they're falling back. Maybe. That's one possible. Okay, say it again. A A repenting... Okay. Four, that's an interesting way of putting that. Repenting about their repentance. In other words, they're sorry they ever repented to begin with. Wow, <laughs> that's really that's a that's a double one.
1: <laughs> in, in first Corinthians, Paul talks about, you know, running to win the prize and yes. discipline in his body, so after I've preached I won't be disqualified. Yes. Good. And so this repentance not coming to repentance
0: could mean you guys are going to be disqualified. That's right. And so, so now we've got, so on one hand, there are some people who say this is talking about those who never were in faith and that they fall away. Other people say that maybe what it's speaking about is a believer that falls away into the kind of sin which results then in severe discipline, and therefore they're disqualified for reward. Okay, so that's the second possibility. I don't know if this is something you're looking for, but talks more and more about being slack in their learning. And- there you go. Right, right. So being lazy in their faith walk and therefore not honoring. uh, Many of the scriptures talk about walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. And that, after all, do you remember what Israel was cast out of the land for doing? That's right. Not being an obedient people unto God, and therefore they dis, they profaned God's name. They blasphemed Him um, um in the nations or among the nations. Do you think it's possible for Christians to get to that state if they fall into an act of disobedience and uh, they they either do not or will not repent for whatever reason, uh, you know? Then then where are they? Are they a person who was never saved? Are they a person who's simply in disobedience? Uh, and they're going to lose reward, or are they a person who are possibly even at a place of losing their life in this severe kind of punishment that God can bring? Interesting to me is this is one of the things I got, and I'm just going to throw it out there for you guys to chew on it a little bit. If you're looking at this as we are right now from the perspective of He's speaking to a Jewish audience and He's pulling them out of the new and putting them into the new, uh, or out of the old and putting them into the new, right? Under the old system, they would go and, and give sacrifices for atonement for sin, correct? How often did they go back and do that?
2: Every, every
0: year. Uh, first of all, there was the major atonement once a year on the Day of Atonement, but then through, periodically through, through the weeks, and maybe even daily for some, like me probably, would be going back every day, right? Which, which What might that set up in your mind as a Hebrew person? I'm maybe do as you want because tomorrow I can just fix it, right? So you become apathetic. Okay? Or today I'm clean, now I'm unclean. Now I'm clean, now I'm unclean. Right. Now I'm clean, now I'm unclean. Now I'm clean. Now, I'm now, I'm clean, now I'm, what does that kind of give you a thought about concerning how would that maybe come into your new system and not you not really let go of that because you don't have the understanding of the finality of God, Christ's work? A lack of assurance. I'm saved, I'm not saved, I'm saved, I'm not saved. His blood is good enough, his blood is not good enough. His blood is good enough, his blood is not good enough. So this author is going to progressively, as we keep moving through this book, he's going to hone in harder and harder and harder on the clarity of exactly what Christ has done that is so significantly better than that old system. And in the process of that, however, he also maintains the integrity of who God is, who God was, and who God will always be. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's going to make that statement. Does somebody remember where that is in Hebrews? Yeah, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Right? Thir- I think it is in 13. So we have a, we have a God who is not changed. The Hebrews need to understand that that also applies for his attitude, God's attitude towards sin and, th- and towards rebellion and towards laziness or slothfulness, right? We looked at many passages this week about those who even profane the, the, the priesthood and how God dealt with them concerning that. He absolutely hates sin, and for sure he absolutely hates anything that's going to mess up his pictures, that's why he hates divorce, hates it, hates it, hates it, because the p- picture of marriage is our picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when we as Christians mess that up, it profanes his holy name in the nations. Do you see that? So that, I think, is going to help us if, we, if you just kind of scribble yourself a note and say, how are they looking at this new thing? in Jesus Christ, that it is better. But but although it's better, Paul addresses it in his letter where he says, well, then can because it's by grace and it's better and it's absolute and you're secure, then can I li- live in sin all the more? Yeah. And he says, absolutely not, right. right? So I think we're seeing a little bit of all that in our book here in Hebrews. So if that helps you to kind of, Get your mind into the right place, I think, concerning what's, what's going on here, what his, his challenge is, is to help them move into what's better and have that security, but to still maintain the, uh, the knowledge that God is a God who judges and hates sin and that we as Christians must live in light of that integrity. We also have a fear before our holy God of understanding that one day we give an account for the life that we've lived, right, as his children. Okay, not for judgment's sake, for those who are in faith but for the sake of, of uh, reward. Okay. All right. So that kind of gives us who our, uh, our audience is, the recipients of, of our Hebrews. There's, there's primarily they are believers. Okay. I'm going to put that on here. Believers. At the church. Uh, believers. Believers. Okay, but also we have, um, how would you call that second group then? The ones that, that seem to be having this back and forth issue going on in their life. According to 6.1, he, he describes them as being what? Immature. Infants and immature or babes in Christ still, right? So the church who are believers, and, pa- and I'm going to put, even put it in this way, the church infants. In faith. They, although, should they still be infants? (laughs) They should actually by this time have grown up in their faith. But apparently their knowledge, their strength of knowledge about who Christ is as that which is better than the old system has not been fully developed. Has not been fully embraced. And they're in danger because they're pining away apparently after what they came out of. Does that sound like a familiar thing that Israel did? What did Israel do when they were brought out of Egypt? Oh if, oh, if we could all, yes, I want to go back to Egypt. It would be better than dying in the desert. And I mean, it's just amazing how repetitious we as human beings are to, to very quickly faint and to um, reminisce in a, unrealistic way about the past, and I do it too all the time, how awesome it was when, right? Or how great it will be when, <laughs> but here I am in the living of the now, and I'm in misery and doing it poorly, <laughs> you know? So, all right. So the secondary audience then, they are either infants, you know, I believe they are, he is addressing believers, he's addressing a congregation, so he's calling them to be the church, He is speaking to them, um, however, in many, many rebukes and many exhortations because these are, are infants in their faith who have not moved on into maturity, and they are in danger of falling back. Now, what that falling back would mean for a believer is the idea of losing rewards and being in danger of discipline. He's going to bring up discipline later. However, there is also a secondary thing. There's a caveat in chapter 3 that we saw, which to me very, very clearly indicates that there may be among these believers also some who are unbelievers. What were those verses? Do you remember in chapter 3? Yeah, if and if. Chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 14. There's even in 12 also, but let's go chapter 3 and look at those. Just to remind yourself, because in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confession and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So he's saying there's to be an external evidence if, in fact, you are, right? Right? Then he says again in verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Not that the holding fast is what saves you, but the holding fast is the evidence that you were saved. Okay? Now in verse 12, though, he says, But take care, brethren. What? That there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God but encourage one another as long as the day, as as it is still called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, that again, to me, says basically, you better examine yourself for two purposes: either to examine yourself to see whether or not you're actually in the faith, and or to examine yourself to say, to say, if I am in the faith, am I actually living the way I should be? Okay, so it could be for discipline or for salvation, either way is at this point. And we you know, and I don't want to get so absolute. And one of the things I've seen in God's word is so how often He makes those kinds of applications for either way, because it depends on who, who you are, or where you are. He's speaking to an audience and he wants to hit them all. So you have to discern discern for yourself, okay, I am absolutely sure I'm saved. I'm very confident of that. Okay, are you living it? Are you in danger of falling away? Are you in danger because you're not living up to the standard of God's calling? So he, he gives us that. He, we also see it in chapter 4, verse 1, don't we? Therefore, let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest. At least any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Now, it's not saying they did come short of it. He's saying, well, at least it looks like you're not, you've come short of it. So... You have to decide whether you did or you didn't in your own heart. And later, he says, God is the one who actually can examine the heart. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and both joint and marrow, and able to uh, judge the thoughts and even the intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So, who's going to give account to God for their life? The saved or the unsaved? Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> now, if you're there as an unsaved person, the accountability that you have is you will be judged for your sin. If you're there as a Christian, what will you be judged for? Not for sin, right? So, what is that judgment speaking of? Reward. Okay.
1: Be judged that the white the That's right. That's exactly right.
0: That's exactly right. And how do you get your, book, your name into the book of life? Believing. By believing. And believing is evidenced by? Faith. Oh, by, well, fa- that is faith. And faith is evidenced by obedience, right? So it's, we're back in this vicious cycle again. So, you know, I, you know, I don't know if we will uh, completely resolve all the, the conflicts that are on. Obviously not, because this has been an issue in the church for years and years. But here is what I am going to do for me because I feel like my integrity has to be maintained before the Lord. And so I went to both Pastor Rob and to Pastor uh, Kalani, Mike Kalani. And in two different conversations at two different times, I spoke about this book. And I said, this is how I'm seeing it, and they both were in agreement with me on it. So they confirmed what I was thinking, and then they added some more insights for me. So I'm going to hold on to those for later, and we'll talk about them. but. But the umbrella that we, this is one of the pillars of, of doing inductive Bible study, never violate your known doctrines, right? And so a couple of our known doctrines about salvation is what? How do you get saved? By faith. By faith and faith alone. And it's because God did it, according to Hebrews, finished work from before the foundation of the world. And we call that what? Grace. Well, yes, and justification, but it's grace. So you are saved by grace, and grace alone, not your works. So this book is not saying that you have to do works, right? And that if you don't do works, then you, you lose it. It's not saying that. So we have to figure out what it is saying, okay? So salvation by grace, and salvation by the way once attained, how long is that salvation to endure? Forever. Forever, and I, we will go into a list on those later. There are multitudes and multitudes of scripture that show the assurance of your salvation. The most important uh, study we can do is a study on covenant itself, which is what salvation is. It's a covenant, and if you enter by covenant, it is one. It is once for all. Yes.
1: Well, if you go to John 3:16, it's
0: eternal life. That's right. It's, it's eternal, eternal life. life. have it, and I lose it. It was misnamed. That's right. I that's exactly right, and I do think that is primarily what we see going on in this book. And, and he's saying, "I can't tell; you have to examine your own heart. Ultimately, God will be the one who will examine your heart. But in the meantime, do not take it lightly, right? It's so this so great a salvation that you have. Do not do not consider it in, in the lightness of your heart or thinking, but consider it as. Um, let's see if I can find that verse. Um, about salvation so great uh 2 3 in chapter 2 verse 3 he says what about it that's right for this reason we must do what pay much closer attention to what we have heard so we do not drift from it verse 3 how will we escape If we neglect so great a salvation, and the subject matter there is that there is a judgment, a God that judges. He'll examine your heart and he'll make judgment. Now, if you're in Christ, good. If you're not in Christ, not so good. Like, as a matter of fact, quite very bad. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Well, yes, and if we're in faith, then it comes, When well, we've already talked about this, and that, this is where this book gets really tangled up for us because you have to kind of bring up, so that's why I'm bringing up the fact that we have to establish some solid understandings that we do not violate. There are some doctrines that you never violate. Salvation is by grace and grace alone, right? And you cannot lose it once you attain it. Um, okay, there was another one, one other one. Okay I guess that was a saved by grace and assurance of salvation. So, so the big umbrella is the grace, how you get that how, how that grace is uh, applied. But then there's also the discipline, and that's going to be a subject that is going to be brought up. this discipline of the believer for slipping away or falling back or whatever. We used to call it backsliding. that was a big term for many years, okay? <laughs> That's a Baptist term, exactly. Do not neglect neglect so great a salvation. Those who are of God's house, they are so, if they hold fast. Um, Speaks about those who possibly are showing signs of unbelief and they are in danger of falling away. Those who are partakers of Christ, if in fact they are holding fast. Some may seem to have come short of it. Their lives are not looking like they should, in other words, right? And so there's a lot of rebuke and stern warnings in here about judgment. Hear his voice, unite the news with faith, obey him, rest from your works. Faith that profits is evidenced by obedience. That's in chapter 3 all the way through 4. Okay, but assurance of salvation is also laced throughout this book. Okay, exhorting them to maturity in faith. Press on to maturity, it says. God, Christ is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. So there's that assurance that he will come to your aid. Um And by the way, 2.10, he's not ashamed to call you brethren. He understands your weakness because what did he do? He took on flesh in chapter 2 and he was what? Himself tempted in all ways that we are also. So he understands us and he was perfected by his sufferings. He made propitiation for our sins. After all, he died on a cross for those, right? We can draw near with confidence, now, if, that, if this book was talking about the subject of losing salvation, this verse right here should have been erased. How can anyone who has come to him and made a confession have confidence to approach that throne if they think, today I'm saved, now I'm not. Oop, now I'm back to being saved, Nope, now I'm not. Which is the old system of thinking, which is what the Hebrews were thinking. So he's trying to bring them out of that thinking and bring them into a confidence a place of confidence that once it was done, once for all, they don't have to worry about that again. Pretty good so far? Okay, so we're, we're doing well. Devil was made powerless, and so we are set free from the fear of death. Can you get me some water? Thank you so much. First of all,
2: what is the, okay, this was written about 68 A.D. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the church has been in the. About
0: 30-some-odd years, yes. So
2: what was the spiritual age of those folks that are running the church right there? I would think they're a lot younger than a lot of folks. Here we are 2,000 years down the road.
0: I, don't, I think it was about the same as it is today. There's a blend of older and younger in that point. You know, many of those apostles by this time have matured to old, being much older men, um, little by little, the the original apostles were falling away, but as we see from Hebrews, this believer came on board. We don't know where he is. We do note, if you remember from studying Acts, that anyone who's going to be a leader or a teacher in the church is vetted. They aren't even allowed to teach the Word of God until after, like, what was it, six years or something like that, at least, of having been allowed to be have one book. and then one more book and then one more book and they gave them little by little a vetting to make sure that they were prepared james says don't let any just anyone basically become a teacher because there's a, a high accountability what i'm at is with this
2: point the church is exploding mhm
0: Maybe. I would say. That's what he says in 6 1. That's right.
1: So that's been years.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's no different than our church today. Yes, I think it's exploding. I think the biggest problem here is not their age group, but who they are and their thinking. Because they've been trained in a mindset. And you know what? That's very interesting, too, to consider. Although Christ came, and died and the new covenant was instituted and yet where did these Hebrew people live? Still in the midst of what? Judaism. Judaism. What is still standing at this time? The temple. We see a a verse later where it talks about the temple um, uh, let me see if I can find it the temple is still, it's in 1310 that the temple is still being used as a reference there to that. And the fact that he keeps mentioning the temple, as a matter of fact, and all the, the processes of the temple and the, the high priest and the, the sacrifices and so forth, but he never makes, I mean, after all, he's trying to teach these believers that Jesus is better than that old system. And if the old system had been done away by abolishing of the temple, he would have made that point. <laughs> I mean, he definitely would have grabbed hold of that and said, see, God even destroyed the temple. to to show you that he's better and it's finished, but it hadn't yet been destroyed. So there's a struggle, a power struggle, between their old mindset and a new. So uh, where it talks about the renewing of our mind, this is what these people need. They need a renewing of their mind to have a new way of, uh, of approaching God through a system that's called Jesus rather than a system that's called the law. So that's our biggest issue. And thusly, because they're still holding on. How many of us have that problem? When we come into faith, we still have an old mind thinking, an old system of thinking. How many of us have even, I did it for sure, growing up in a Baptist church. There were some Baptist teachings that I had that I know are wrong now. But that's the way I was taught, and so it was really hard for a long time for me to let go of that and say, oh, I guess they were wrong, because it was like, what? They were wrong? (laughs) I could hardly admit it, you know, (laughs) because it just was like, no, it just can't be. And I think that's kind of the way it is. So this author is struggling with these people to bring them into a new thinking. By a renewing of their mind. And he's challenging them in chapter 6 saying, look, you should have already pressed on to maturity and you haven't. Okay?
2: There, it's also a time of so it's a time when...
0: Well, persecution's about to come. Some persecution. I mean, some, some had already been killed. No, he says they've not died yet. They've but not they've lost, lost, their lost their life. Right. I mean, well, the, he says that it's not to the shedding of blood yet, so it's apparently before the real persecution of...
2: No, I'm talking about some of the earlier...
0: Well, okay, like the martyrs, the martyrs of their faith. True, true, true. You're right.
2: So, you know, it's harder when you see the people that you're following...
0: Being killed for their faith, and that's scary. No, you're, that's true, Carrie. That is true. You're right about that. Absolutely. Okay. All right, so now we've got that review redone, and we really needed to do that because we had a long break. So we want to go now. So now here we are into Chapter 5, and we're going to start with a new subject matter, aren't we? What is going on in Chapter 5? Give me, let's start by just listing our keywords from Chapter 5. We're just going to get some basics down. Today, we're laying a little bit of a foundation about what we're going to be looking at more and more and more. The subject of the great high priest comes up in this, at this point, and then he takes a pause for a chapter and a half, and then he'll come back to it again, but he explains why he takes the pause, doesn't he? Okay? So what is your major uh, keywords in chapter five? High priest. <laughs> All right. Is it, does it say Jesus or Christ in this one? In
1: one
0: okay, good. Because I just want to make sure I put the right one up here because I know sometimes it's um, Christ. Okay. All right. Oh, that was three. I'm in five now. Wrong place. My son the begotten. He doesn't even give him a name here. My son. Okay. But Okay. Christ. There it is. Thank you so much. I missed it. Christ. I saw all the crosses, but they were all like you and he and, and a son. Okay. I missed that one. Okay. So he is called. So Christ is that we absolutely know Christ is the major subject in this whole thing. Okay. So Christ is keyword. The high priest is another key word. Melchizedek comes up in this one, doesn't it? Son. Is it the son? Or something else? My son. My son. My son. Okay, so that's the Christ. OK. Mel, M L C, H-I-Z-E, D-E-K. I'll get that one down eventually. <laughs> we might just call him Mel. <laughs> Okay, I can pronounce it, I can't write it. <laughs> Melchizedek, okay. Sin comes up. Okay, yes. talks about weaknesses and sacrifices for sins. Um, I guess that was a couple of times at least at the beginning, right? Okay. Sin, obey, okay. Pardon? Thank you. That was the one I was waiting for, designated. And then there's a synonym to it, which is appointed. Right? In verse 1, it speaks of of, uh, the high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men. And then later, it talks about then, in verse 10, Jesus himself being designated by God as the high priest, okay, according to the order of Melchizedek. There's another person that's brought up in here who's a significant uh, prophet of the old or, or patriarch of the old. Aaron, that's right. And that's going to come in, I think, as an important one for understanding this Melchizedek reference. Okay, our, now at this point in chapter 5, do we see any indication about who the audience is and w- how they're described, because I just think that's another point. Dole of, of hearing believers. <laughs> okay. So the dull of hearing, and I'm going to put infants, because I that was one of them. So that's the audience. He's hit a subject. It's very interesting. He In chapter 1, he speaks about who Jesus is as as the, um, the begotten son, as the, the one that was uh, coming as God in flesh, no problems. He didn't challenge them on them handling that or understanding that or embracing that at all. But when he hits this chapter 5, now all of a sudden he mentions about Jesus being their great high priest. Now he's got a problem with them. And now he challenges them as being those who are dull of hearing infants, right? So that's the audience that he is... Uh, relating to here
1: that's right not Something trained
0: don't even know. yeah exactly they're not even trained well and a lot of it is maybe they've even been taught it on occasion they just did they don't train themselves. how do you get trained to discern good from evil how do you get mature in christ by practice and how and what is it that you're practicing obedience, obedience. and obedience to what to the, scripture. to the scripture so what is the problem that they've got going on here they don't know the, don't know the word, word of god. god they don't know the word of righteousness that good news that was preached to them they got the basic levels of it but didn't go any deeper how many christians do that A lot. a lot the, ma- the, the masses do that, even to this very day. If this is not a problem for today, I don't know what is. And it's so frustrating because I know, as most of you know, as I do, having, trying to have a conversation with someone in a deep manner about the Word of God, you have to explain everything. You have to back up ten steps and, you know, okay, now wait a minute. <laughs> you have to start at the elementary principles, and then you forgot what you were talking about to begin with, you know. <laughs> I do that all the time. But it's it's so exciting when I have a group like this because with each one of you, I can approach you in a conversation and start anywhere and you guys follow. And you guys can come to me at any place and bring me into a conversation. And I can follow. And we can add to one another's thoughts. We can share things that have God is by his spirit brought to our minds and it's sh- it's that iron that sharpens iron and that's where the mature believer is supposed to be going and to continue in. Their whole life, you never reach a place that you're finished learning, ever. Right, Evelyn? That's right. (laughs) She's going yes. (laughs) She's going. I don't know if I like this idea, but okay, yes. (laughs) All right. Okay. So now the key words: high priest, um, sinning and obeying, designated and appointed, concern, and that's in reference to that high priest. Um, These people are uh, dull of hearing, they're infants, and he brings this subject up in relationship to what? That that he can't even go on and talk to them about what, because they're dull? This thing about the high priest, right? And the high priest being in reference to how he has been designated, right? How was he designated, the high priest? According to what? What? The order of Melchizedek, and, he, and all of a sudden he has to make a stop and a pause. So starting out there at the end of that chapter 5, all the way through chapter 6, is like a big parenthesis, and he's going to explain some things and take them back to some things and challenge them on things and rebuke them about things because they are not maturing as they should, they're not going deeper as they should, and he says, I can't even go on to explain to you why Jesus is so much better because you guys have not been growing. And so this is really a very stern I am um, I think address to this particular audience. Okay, contrasts. Did you mark contrasts in this chapter? Okay. Starting in I'm going to make a little thing here. 11 to 14 there are several contrasts in there. So you said infant that's in verse 13 versus the mature in 14. That's one contrast. There are a couple of others in there right in there. Yeah. Okay, should be teachers. They should be. But they need teaching. And that's in 5:12. Okay? Yes, big time, a big reproving. <laughs> Any other contrasts in there? Okay, so in the on that's on let's see on eleven to fourteen, there's one more about the. Um, There you go. Milk and solid food. That's the one I was looking for. As another real obvious contrast, but the in, end of that then goes on to say because they're not accustomed to the word of righteousness not evil, good and evil exactly. Okay. So, those are some contrasts that show right away in that one consolidated area that there's a con- there's a conflict going on here between the, the writer and the listeners. And he's, he's exposing the problem with him being able to even go on with more of his uh, teachings on Jesus being better because they're so immature that he doesn't even know if they're ready to accept these, these continued teachings concerning Jesus being a designated high priest. Because this is a higher level of or a, or a deeper depth of understanding about who Christ is as the, as the Son of God who came, right? they were looking for who concerning their Christ? A king. king. They were all the way up here on this real superficial level. That's why in chapter 1, when he's talked about having a throne forever and he's being spoken as as being God, as being the begotten, there was no problem. And he never had to stop and say, you immature babies, you don't even get it. But they they did get it. They got those elementary things, and especially the things that they really wanted, right? Am I making a lot of noise here? So, I can hook it into my earring, it might hold better. <laughs> that might work. OK. Um, all right. So let's look at the chapter then on the whole. We, are there any other contrasts that you want to bring up in the book on, before that? I don't think those are a contrast. Let me look. Say, in you're taking, saying in five, in eight, yes. he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. No, I don't think so. I'm sorry, but I I don't think those are actually a contrast. Yes, take okay. It, it, I don't know if it's a contrast but there is a comparison that goes on there. Christ is how is the comparison made in the first 4 verses it's talking about men are taken they're appointed, right? Men are appointed. And then in chapter uh the next segment which is 5 and 6, who else is appointed? Yeah. Well, is and then Christ. Christ. But he's, there's clearly differences. He's not in the line of Aaron. Right? He's to right. And so what does he seem to ho- hone in on? Is it that, is that um, he's not from the line of Aaron or how he was appointed? What seems to be the greater emphasis? How. how. It seems to me that he focuses in on one quality or one point. of well, This is another thing that's really important for you and I to remember. He's going to address the priesthood here, but he's only going to hone in on one or two little points. There's lots more about the priesthood, Right but he's going to hone in on just a couple of points here and we're going to try to draw them out but but later as we move through each of these chapters after we get through our parentheses in the end of 5 through 6 when we pick up in 7 he's going to go back to the priesthood and he's going to further develop more points okay so um, that, that okay um, okay um, let's see G- give me some concise statements here so I can write it up here for you
1: okay, all
2: right.
0: okay um, yeah um, okay, give me the contrast statements really clearly, though I need to know how to write it down, yeah, if that's what you're giving me is contrast, oh, a comparison, oh okay, good, so a compare- that's okay, okay, so in in comparing then you're comparing him as being Better than, actually, then Again, we're back to the major emphasis of the whole book is that Jesus is better than. So in this case, he's better than the men who are appointed from among men versus Christ who's been appointed, right? Okay, got it. Very good. Now I'm following you, Carrie. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm a little slow, but I eventually catch up, right? Um, All right. So now let's go and let's look at the major theme. So let's title it Chapter Theme. We know the major theme then is about Jesus and about the priesthood, right? So how are you going to title this? Chapter 10. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 5. So sorry. <laughs> I, di- I jumped ahead of it. Yeah, there you go. Look, just follow my thinking. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was looking at my chart where it says verse 10. <laughs> sorry. Okay, that Jesus is what? He is a better high priest, right? Because we're going to stick with the better thing. Jesus, a better high priest. And if you want to get your your word of designated in there, you could actually say designated or a better designated high priest, either way, if you wanted to add that in there. But I do think that is sufficient. He's a better high priest, okay? That he was designated, though, is, is key in this. A better high priest, a better high priest designated. Okay, because the designation quality of this seems to be the emphasis that's going on at this point, this one point about him that he was appointed or designated seems to be significant. Why would that be so? From what we looked at this week in our homework in these cross-references about the priesthood of Aaron, when we went back to Exodus, we went back to Leviticus, Some of this is review for us who did Leviticus, right? Why is it so important that of this designation being a qualification for Jesus? And why would these people say, whoa, 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 Jesus can't qualify? That's right. He did not fit the qualifications on a human standard, did he? Which is that it had to be someone who was appointed from whom? The ironic line of the priesthood and within the Levitical, did you guys find it interesting or did, was it a first time learned for any of you that the, there's a Levitical priesthood, but not all the priests are high priests, right? Not all the, the Levites become a priest. Some of the Levites are simply servants for the priests, right? Given as a gift by God to the, the priests themselves to be their helpers, basically, So there are many Levites, but among the Levites, there's only one group who gets to be the high priests. And who are they? The line of Aaron. 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 And so this is what this particular author is now addressing, which makes perfect sense when you get into the mind of a Jewish person whom he is writing to. These Jews are saying, now wait a minute, Jesus is not in the line of Aaron. We just got through in the earlier chapters, indicating that he's a king, makes him the line of David. Right? right? And so if he's in the line of if he's in the house of David, he's sure not a Levite. How can he qualify? And not only is he not a Levite, he's not of the line of Aaron. So he doesn't qualify. So this book, right now, at this point, the focus of his point here, right now, is that he's been designated. Who does the designation? Who gets to designate according to what we looked at in Second Chronicles? God does. And when that was challenged in 2 Chronicles, what did God do? He showed them who he chose, didn't he? He made it clear to them, it is my choosing and this is who I choose. And his, his severe chastisement of their challenging him on that is shown through that particular record in 2 Chronicles, how God so structures this picture that it cannot be violated. Why not? What happens if we violate the picture of the priesthood? We We violate God's authority in the name of God? What happens to the gospel? What happens to the gospel if we mess with God's picture about it? It's distorted. When the Christ actually comes, if you've messed up the picture, you don't recognize the truth, right? So if Jesus was going to come and be the reality, which is what we're seeing in this book, he's better than every single other thing. And in every other single thing, the picture that the Jews had is discussed, and they're going to say, but now here's Jesus who's the reality. He is the real one. There was the Sabbath rest, and there was the land of rest, but nope, now there's Jesus. The rest of God. And so there was a picture, and now there's a reality. So if you mess with the picture, what happens when the reality comes? It's all messed up. They don't get it. So these people are being taught then about one specific point, and that is the reality that God does the choosing. So in this book, let's go through chapter, do our paragraphs so we get our flow of thought here. Let's start by looking at verses 1 to 4. What do we see about designation in 1 to 4? Who was designated in 1 to 4? Every high priest taken from among men. men. And who is the patriarch that's mentioned at the close of that that we are familiar with now? Aaron, so it's talking about Aaron and all those who came after him, all the sons of Aaron who would come generation by generation, they, uh, Aaron was appointed, and how was he appointed, or who was he appointed by? God. By God, right? So we're going to put on here Aaron, and then you can assume that I'm talking about the whole lineage, was appointed by God, okay? Okay? That's in 1 to 4. Now go into 5 and 6. Now what do we see? So Christ was yeah. So, so also Christ. He was also appointed. He did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. Now, see, this is what happened in Chronicles, where these men who came up, the, the sons of Korah and all those others, they came up against Moses and against Aaron, and they said, who do you think you are? You're lording it over us. You've got this position of power, and you think you're holier than thou, basically, right? And they were defying that authority. And, and when they decided that they wanted to usurp that power and authority and position and defy God's order of things... Then God had to step in and deal with them, and many of them it cost them their life, right? So God made sure. But in concerning Christ, did He usurp His authority? Did He usurp that position? What was the quote then that gives us that assurance that it was God's design and not a usurping?
2: You are my son and also you're a priest forever.
0: Okay, so where does that verse come from? Where is that quote taken from? The Psalms. So this is an ancient text for these people, an understanding that God is the one that foreordained it. And quite honestly, even from before this, we've already laid down a foundation that the work God had for this salvation was done from before the foundation of the world. And He goes, on, you can go all back to chapter 1, and he's saying, And Jesus is that begotten Son. That is the work that's finished and was designated for you. So it ties all the way back that Christ then was also appointed, right? Christ also was also appointed by God because of these scriptures that are given to us, right? And he was appointed by God as a priest. You can say as, I guess you want to add on that, as priest. Okay, so a better high priest. So now we're going to look at 7 to 10. What do you see in uh, chapter 7 through 10? He is, the of he is the source of but And so stick with the theme about being designated. What does it tell us about his designation there that's significant? The order of that it was by the according to the order of Melchizedek, which is really important because in the lineage, and we're going to look on this more later, but just... By reference, when did this Melchizedek come up? Before or after the, the Aaron line? Before. 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 So what it's going to show is that this was something that was predestined from before the Aaronic line was actually established. And that Christ had been uh, according to that order. And that he's going to go on when we get into chapter 7 and explain how that's all possible. Right? But in 7 to 10, he brings us to the place where he says Jesus was designated as that high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And I'm going to put Mel on there for Melchizedek because I don't have room to write it okay so him and Mel <laughs> uh, all right now what happens then in verses 11 to 14 concerning this appointment by the order of Melchizedek what is that what he's talking about is this concerning this concerning this what Concerning this appointment that Jesus had been appointed according to the order of Melchizedek. And then what does he go on to say? Well, concerning this what? Concerning them. You're dull of hearing hearing in your infants. I can't, he said, it's hard to explain it to you because you're so dull of hearing in your infants. And this is going to be, okay, can you sit down for about two hours while I take you through this? How many people really want to do that? Nobody. I mean, I love it when people come up to me and say, what does this mean? I'm going, well, how much time do you have? (laughs) You know, because I I mean, in order to explain it, you're going to have to back up and lay down some points so that they will follow you. Otherwise, they're going to listen to what you say your bottom line answer is. They're going to go, eh, I don't like that answer. And they're going to walk away. But if you can show it to them, which is the teacher in me, I can't help myself. But if you can show it to them, systematically through Scripture documenting what the flow of thought and and connecting the the dots, basically, in Scripture. You can show them how the answer that you want to give them outwardly is actually a truthful statement, right, Uh, through reasoning. So in 11 to 14, he says, concerning this, this what, this appointed appointment, right? It's hard to explain. Uh, (laughs) It's the Melchizedek, Melchizedek, I think so too. It's talking about concerning him, we have much to say, him, Melchizedek. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for although by this time you ought to be teaching, it goes on. He's talking about the solid uh, immaturity of that. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Quite honestly, Carol, you could probably group it all together. It's talking about Jesus who was uh, appointed according to that order of Melchizedek. Him who? Him, the Melchizedek, that order, Jesus was appointed. So in a way, you can blend them both together. But I think specifically, it's talking about Melchizedek. And we know this because what does he do after he takes his parentheses and chews them out about being infants? What happens when he hits to chapter 7? He, he goes back to Melchizedek. and says, okay, now that I've chewed you out about being babies, now let me take you back to Melchizedek and tell you what is truth, and then you can try to digest it later and learn it for yourself, right? Yes. So during this time period, too, here are the people hearing
2: about Jesus being king, and now he's supposed to be a priest. hmm Mhm. But this is also for the Jews. These two offices were not in the same person. That's exactly they right. very distinct. That's right.
0: That's right.
2: And they're under Roman rule right now. So the only one they have from is Aaron, and you can understand
0: the struggle. It's a huge struggle. That's right. And in many ways, I really think historically, if you look at the timelining of this, we talked about earlier about six the late... Mid to late 60s is probably when this was written. The, the temple, though, is about to go down. And when it's down, what are they going to do? They need to have this assurance that they have a great high priest. Because it's a part of God's picture of, of the gospel of salvation itself, atonement itself is through the high priest. They have to have a high priest. They have to, have to, have to have a high priest. They cannot cannot move forward even in their faith system without assurance that they have a high priest who intercedes between them and God because they have a full understanding that they are sinners and that they cannot approach a holy God without an intercessor. Do you remember the the tabernacle? What's between the outer tabernacle uh, sanctuary and the inner holy of holies? The veil. the veil. And what sits before the veil? The table of incense. And why do they burn on the table of incense? What, what does that symbolically represent? The prayers of the prayers of saints and the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. That's the primary thing. That that is the intercessory picture for us. And that without, and as a matter of fact, what did they have to carry into the inner tabernacle first? And he would do you who did Leviticus remember? I would say they would go to the altar, they would get their coals on their pan. The the high priest, only the high priest can do this. He would approach that and he would enter in backwards. And we go in and in the dark. He would lay his pan of coals down, and then he would, get, he would exit again, never facing the, 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 um, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Because without an intercessor between him and God, what would happen to him? He would be consumed, right? So he enters in backwards. He places the intercessory s- incense of the, of the smoke and th- that fills that altar, and he leaves. Then he comes in with the blood, and he sprinkles Remember that? We walked through all those processes. I said that was beautiful. So I remember when I went to Don's church, and they had the tabernacle there, the tabernacle experience it was called, right? And they showed that to us, and we got to go and stand at that altar of incense and light our incense and walk into there. But we did it, of course, directly, immediately, walking in. But we had our incense, and as I stood there and I saw that smoke right before my eyes, and all of a sudden, I got the picture of this, this incense and the smoking of, of the coals, the burning of those coals, was the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. And I had no right to be before that tabernacle, before that Holy of Holies, without my intercessor. So do you see what happens with these Jews? They have to have their intercessor. That's why this, this topic of the great high priest is, interestingly, he says, You haven't left those basics, right? The ABCs, the elementary teachings. And he goes through them systematically and lists some of those ABCs. What is the next thing he takes them through after ABC? That Jesus is who? Their great high priest. Because it's also, at that fundamental level, necessary for them. They have to have their intercessor. So this author is writing at a time in history when that temple's about to go down. These are people who have entered into a new faith. They haven't fully left the old behind. He's trying to show them how this Jesus is their their high priest. Isn't that awesome? It's a beautiful picture. All right, so concerning this appointment as the intercessor, Jesus being that appointed intercessor, it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. you are dull of hearing and then I ended it infants now infants tells me that they are saved he's not saying you're not saved he's saying they are saved but they're they're at a place or a position of infancy still okay all right so that's chapter 5 now let's talk real quickly and we're not going to spend as much time on this Because I want you to go home this week and really develop this if you did not do it. How many of you guys went back through all the chapters and began a list on Jesus, anything that references the high priest? What is one of our key words here? High priest. priest. So if you have a key word, what should you have done? (laughs) What are you laughing at, Lisa? Lisa? Yay! We, we all got one right. Exactly. Hallelujah. We've only spent an hour on this, so we've got it. We've got it finally. Okay. So we know it's the high priest. And in the inductive Bible study process, if you mark a key word, what are you supposed to do with it? Make a list. Make a list. Did you make your list on the word high priest out of chapter five? Yes. You. How many of you went back and and filled it in with chapters one, two, three, and four? No. Okay, I'm challenging you to do that this week, <laughs> because it will help you fully develop the subject of the high priest. Because there's more information that's given previously. Okay, and it's not a lot. I think I've got to see one, two, three, four, five. I've got about ten points, but a lot of this after. But starting in chapter two a little bit in Chapter 3, and then quite a bit more in Chapter 4. There are points in there about the high priesthood that you need to have put in in a nice, concise list for this. Okay, so since you haven't done that, um, I'm going to kind of skip that first point, and I'm going to go on to Chapter 5 with you. And I want you to tell me, what did you learn about the priesthood out of Chapter 5 that, quite honestly, we saw a reality check on it when we went into our Old Testament references, right? Tell me, what did you learn about the high priest in chapter 5? And I'm not going to write this down. I'm just going to listen to you guys. Well, he was taken from among men. Okay, chapter 5, verse 1, he's taken from among men. Now, this is interesting. If the high priest has to be taken among men, and Jesus is now being presented as being their high priest, does that also explain to us why chapter 2 of Hebrews came about? Yes. What happened in chapter 2? What did we learn about who Jesus is? He took on flesh. In order for him to become a high priest, he needed to be taken from among men. Why? Because what is the po- the quality of being a man that's represented for us in chapter five, uh, verses one and two? So that he has understanding and he can go on behalf of men. First of all, it's on behalf of men. So he had to be a man to be able to represent man. Okay. Does that kind of make sense to you now? Why chapter two? He had to take on flesh in order to even get to the place of being qualified to be a high priest, okay? And um, concerning uh, uh, the giving of gifts, right, he offers both gifts and sacrifices for sins, but concerning sins, what is he able to do because Jesus himself took on flesh? He's
2: able to
0: deal gently because he was tempted as we are. That's right. He is... He can deal gently. Now, in, the, in verse 2, he's speaking specifically of the human priesthood yet, right? He's speaking about the Aaronic priesthood. He's saying about those priests, they can uh, deal gently with those who are what? I love this part. Misguided. Ignorant and misguided. <laughs> I'm going, boy, oh, boy, does that ever describe me? Ignorant and misguided because he himself is what? beset with weakness. Now Jesus was not beset with weakness. Now there's a contrast which we didn't bring up, but I'm going to point it out to you now. He the earthly priest is beset with weakness. But what is how is Jesus described? Tempted but without sin, and he talks about his his piety. That's why God heard him. So that word piety would be your contrast to being beset with sin. But Jesus was one in piety; he was heard because of his piety, meaning his his pureness, right? His holiness. He was able to make That's right, and because of his piety, he's also would yeah. Right. Well, and what's really going to be fun is when we get down into eight, nine, and ten, we're going to see where in, in those verses it's going to talk about um, Jesus being the better sacrifice and so forth too, because his sin is better than that of the lambs of, of uh, or the blood of lambs and goats, right? Um, all right. So he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Is given to us. What else did we learn? What is the obligation of a priest? To offer sin, right? Offer sacrifices for sin. For the people, and in the case of the Aaronic priest, also sacrifices for his own sin. Okay, what else did you learn? That's right. And again, did Jesus take the honor to himself? Did he usurp that? No, he did not, because God himself had already predestined it had already foreordained it, had already quoted, had already inspired men to write it. It's all the way back to the Psalms we see this. This was one of the quotes that's given to us.
1: And Katie, just kind of aside, but it kind of happened in the, you know, the contrast
0: we saw with Moses earlier. Mm-hmm.
1: And then you go back and look at Moses. He was a leader, he was a prophet, and he was a priest. And he was a priest. I thought that was cool. That
0: And that, I have a feeling, Craig, that will actually come up in one of our homework cross-references that's going to maybe kind of gel those three things together because uh, uh, Moses is being um, highly regarded, right? And this is why right away in chapter 3, we see that comparison that he is better than Moses because although Moses had these three qualities, he he had those three qualities, but he also had additional things, right? Right? for one thing, but that he was greater than Moses because of his message being that which was a heavenly calling, the reality calling, where Moses spoke of those things which were to come as a prophet. Yeah. All right. What else? Well, another contrast comes to mind is that Christ is our high priest forever. Yes. That's a good one. And although it doesn't actually directly state it here, we know the implication is men don't last forever, do they? they It goes, they are. And so, and generationally, as they die, then it gets passed on. And that's why the order of Aaron, when it was established, was established for Aaron and his sons and his descendants after him. Yes. I th- one, of the, one of the most profound things that we can teach the church today is that the, that old system never did make anything perfect. It was not a, a covenant of salvation. It never was intended for salvation. It was a temporal thing, and it was a picture only. It's, its only purpose was a tutor, to lead people to see the Christ and recognize him when he came.
1: It could lead the blessings,
0: but that was the best. That was it. That's the best it could do. And certainly they were obliged to do it, Right? But also Jesus later is quoted as saying sacrifices and offerings thou never desired. Right? It never appeased God. It was never God's plan. It never was what what the Lord wanted. But he said, a body you have prepared for me. Because it's through his body that it can be accomplished once for all. And therefore, then the sins are done away with. Right? All right? Any other insights about our priest, about Jesus as our priest?
2: Propitiation. The big difference.
0: That's a really good point. Now, it doesn't talk about that here, but it will. We will get there. Atonement versus propitiation is a huge contrast, isn't it? Okay. So the word propitiation does come up here. Was it here or back in 2? It must have been in chapter 2 where it says he made propitiation for sin. So the, the concept of propitiation is already brought up. It's one of the reasons I want you to go back and make a further list on who who Jesus, uh, the subject of the high priest. Anywhere you see it referenced, any insights that you see about it, because the, pre, the priesthood of Jesus makes propitiation. And once we do a word study on that and really work that through, we're going to compare that to what happens under the priest, the earthly priesthood of, of Aaron. Okay. All right, and then, of course, Melchizedek comes up. All right, so let's move on then, and let's go really quickly through what we've learned um, through these shadows that God gave to us. What did you learn in Exodus 28 and 29 and also Leviticus 8 about God's choosing? What are some absolute hard, fast points concerning the choosing of a priest? Do you have? Do you all have your observation worksheets on Chapter Eight or on Exodus twenty-eight and twenty-nine? Okay, so tell me what did you learn. God has the choice of who approaches him, how he is approached, and what will be dressed when they approach him. <laughs> now, are you in Leviticus? When you're you thinking on it, yes, you're in Leviticus. No, I mean, that's okay. That's exactly right. In Leviticus, that, I mean, for us, that's a familiar one because we did Leviticus just recently. or Well, it's probably been five years or so now, but it feels like yesterday just about, doesn't it? Um, but in Exodus, we found that God was very thorough in how he designated not only who they would be, but how they would dress what they would and would not do, what they would wear, how they would wear it, what colors it would be, what its function was. I mean, he was really specific. And then there was the process of ordaining them and anointing them into that position as well, which is where we see Moses stand up to to act on behalf of the position of a priest himself as he ordains Aaron and his sons. So it's really a, a very cool. Okay, so let's go back to Exodus, though. What did you learn in Exodus about... Um, God's choosing of a high priest. Start in verse one of twenty-eight, for instance. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. God God instructed Moses to bring Aaron. Right. He told him exactly who to bring. To bring Aaron and his sons. as priests to God. Okay, and that's in 28.1. Any other points out of 28? How long is their priesthood going to be according to 28? Did you happen to note that or put a clock on that verse? Always, forever. Okay, drop down to 29. Someone read that. Or no, verse 9 rather, 29.9. Okay, perpetual statute. Okay, so that's in twenty-eight verse nine. Um, who consecrated them in twenty-nine forty-four? I'm just gonna. Re- I'm really jumping through this quickly because we aren't gonna have time to do a lot of this. But in twenty-nine of Exodus, verse forty-four, who is the one that? Because we're looking at the subject of that is God's choosing in this, right? So who is the one that did the anointing according to the, the first story? God does it. So in 29, although Aaron, uh, uh, Moses is his instrument through which he works, but God is the one. It's really cool because I love that verse. He says it's God that consecrated as a high priest. Okay, so that's in 2944. Any other points that you want to bring up? Let's go back to, then let's move on to Leviticus 8 and just get a couple of things out of it. How is God's choosing shown to us in Leviticus chapter 8? Okay. Actually, it's every detail about them is just determined by God. God set up the entire thing. He told them how to dress and what to put on and in what order even to do it all, correct? Okay, so God, God does it. Aaron and his sons are chosen and consecrated and anointed. This part to me is interesting. Who witnessed this? At the whole congregation. Go to verse eight, four, uh, 4. Verse 4. Someone read that. Okay, so in front of the congregation, basically, at the at, uh, congregation of Israel, at the doorway of the tent of meeting, he br- Moses brings them in obedience to God. So it's God that did it, and who watched on and saw all this? The entire congregation of Israel. Now, why is this important before we move in to Numbers. <laughs> Because of what happens with these very same people and their defiance against this set up and designed designated order that God, it'd be, it's kind of, I got to, this is an interesting comparison about defiance about God's order of things. Do we have an order of things that we know is right that our world today defies consistently against God on? What, give me some suggestions here. I know they're controversial, but throw them out anyway homosexuality is one huge one abortion. abortion okay well that would be directly a sin and it's murder but that's not exactly a function of um... order that's not exactly a function of order marriage, marriage the idea of marriage and who's supposed to have what kind of a role and and how there's sub- you know it used to be that word of submission was like a dirty word to a lot of people for a lot of years why because we had an, a movement in political realms of, of uh, women's lib, basically, which trampled on God's word and would not allow women to consider the idea of being subordinate underneath their husband, that there was a healthy and a good and a God-honoring thing. It made it a dirty word. It made it a, 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 a disliked thing, so much so that women totally rebelled against it. And it, it destroyed generations of children to follow because of this dysfunction in families that destroyed people's lives, really, in many, many ways. And why? Because God set an order. He determined it. We didn't. That is what is going on here in Numbers. God set an order, and he des- designated how the priesthood would be chosen and who it would be. It's God's decision, right? And people didn't like it. Not even the priests themselves who already had a position of of honor. But they were now mad because they didn't have the priesthood also. So they came up and tried to defy against it. So being in front of the whole congregation, they witnessed it. They witnessed God's uh, consecration or, or establishment of Aaron and sons right? And we're going to put on here 8.4 as your reference to that. Aaron and his sons were chosen and consecrated and anointed in front of the congregation. And it's really interesting. Did you see a key repeated phrase in chapter 8 about Moses in relationship to the Lord? What is it keeps saying that Moses did? if you mark, I don't know if you marked it or not, but I had to mark it because I couldn't help myself, you know. You see a key repeated thing. And it's like over and over and over and over. And Moses did according to all that the Lord said. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. And so it's over and over. So Moses did this. Okay, so then we get to Numbers. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to get all these points up here. But we looked at chapter uh, 16 to 18, basically, of, of Numbers, the first part of 18. We see that Aaron and his sons have been chosen to come near, right? I'm going to put this up here as the first point, as the very first point. That's in 18.1. Aaron and his sons were chosen to come near. It doesn't say that part, it's the implied of it, because the next part of it says, but who is not? But their brothers, what? Keep going down into verse 2 and 3 of chapter 18. They were to attend to them. And concerning coming near, what? They shall not come near. And if they do come near, what? They and you both will die. I'm holding you, Aaron, and your sons accountable to make sure they do not come near. And if now... Obviously, if they come near and Aaron and the sons tried to prevent them, God would not hold that against them. But if they allowed it, if they didn't challenge them, if they didn't correct them, if they didn't rebuke them, God would hold that against even the Aaronic priests, and they would also be put to death. So the whole congregation, according to 18, the reason I think this is put in 18 is to just reinstate or to restate what everyone already knows who's not, You know, Gentile. (laughs) All the Jews, they know this. But it's a restatement of what we looked at in Exodus 28, 29 and in Leviticus 8. We see in chapter um, uh, 18, verses 1 through 3, that God had chosen them. He makes a statement. But their brothers from that same tribe of Levi, they were not. They shall not come near. So then that's going to help us when we go into chapter 16 and look at the events that take place. So what happens in 18? You tell me. We, we don't have time to write it down. We're just going to s- try to get through this. Rebellion, Rebellion occurs. So C- Korah, who are from the, so- the sons of Levi, they rebel. Who else rebels with them? The sons of who? Yes, okay. And th- who are they the tribe of? Reuben, right? Does it say Reuben in there? Okay. All right. So they are all sons. So there's Dathan, uh, Abraham, and On. These are sons of Reuben. Okay. And so these are basically not Levites, but they're also angry. Now, why are they angry? These others that are not Levite's. They're angry because what? What are they accusing Moses of? Right. Okay. That was a collect- exactly there. Who do you think you are? Aren't we all God's chosen people? Are not we all holy? Right? Yeah. Okay. So that was one of their complaints. When it came to uh, the complaint against the priesthood qualities, we see the sons of Levi, that that's their major thing. Who do you think you are that you're exalted above us? Right? In our, in our Le- Levitical line, who, who gets to make you the important one? Well, who did? God did, right? Okay, now concerning the, the families of Reuben and others that we see will come on board later in this storyline, what is their major complaint? Not about the Levitical thing, really, but what? That they were where and they were going to do what? What was going to happen to them? Where's this land of milk and honey, right? And they said, oh, Moses, you've brought us out here to do what to us? to let us be destroyed in the wilderness. So do you see what their complaint is? Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. These are Israelites. They just came out of Egypt. Who brought them out of Egypt? God God did. Yes, Moses was the the physical leader, but it was God. Who went before them as a pillar of light and as a a pillar of smoke that traveled before them to give them the way? Where, Where was the tabernacle? Every place that they went was with them and among them. Once they got to Mount Sinai, they got their instructions on how to build this, and it went with them everywhere. The Lord was the one leading them, right? And yet they're saying about Moses that, Moses, you brought us out here to kill us, basically. There is no land of milk and honey. They're in total disbelief and total unbelief, right? Rebellion and unbelief. All right, so... We have this. Going. So now, what is ha- what happens? This is interesting. What does Moses say in verses in chapter sixteen, verses five and seven? What does Moses tell those Levitical men to do? To okay. Re- okay. Re- let's let's read that whole thing because I want you to tell me what is the problem here. Okay. Tell me. Read that verse five through seven. You
2: spoke to Korah, and all. El- Lord will show who, who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company, put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you
0: sons of Levi. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Tell me, what's the problem here? The sons of Levi, were they supposed to touch the holy articles or go before the presence of the Lord with incense? What was going to happen to them about their brothers? He says, Aaron, you and your sons are chosen to come near to me, but your brothers what? If you come near, what's going to happen? You will die. And now Moses says, oh, you're complaining? Bring your censors and come. We'll see. Let's see what God does. Do you see that I, once I got this, once I kind of read this all through enough and I went, oh, my gosh, he's basically saying, come to your death sentence, you know, because if they go before the Lord, God has already told them, you will die. And they knew this. And yet they were so arrogant and so willful. What did they do? They got their pans of fire and they came before the Lord. What happened to them? They They died. They died. <laughs> I know, the in a flame of fire. I have I put fire on my page for my visual age. That's right. The, uh, so the 250 men who were offering the incense of fire, they came. The, the, then fire came forth from the Lord and consumed them. That's in 16:35. Uh, what about the rest of those men, the other grumblers from the assembly, the, the sons of Reuben? The yep, the earth opens up, swallows them. Right. Exactly. And you yeah. know what? You know what's interesting about it? swallows and stuff. Nice. Very good snack. Now. I don't know. and Okay. So you and I, if we are present and we witness this, how do we respond? Oh, gosh. We're so sorry. We are so sorry. Uh, no. Look at 1641. On the very next day, what did they do? Grumble. They grumbled again. The sons, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, What? You are the ones that have caused the death of the Lord's people. God swallowed them up and sent fire down, two supernatural judgments that were not of men. It wasn't like Moses stoned them. I mean, it wasn't a human disaster. It was God." And yet they didn't learn. The very next day, they grumbled again. So now what did God do?
2: He said, get away so I can consume them.
0: Yeah, he did. He says, move back, Aaron. Move back, Moses. Here it comes. I'm going to wipe them out, right? So God sends a plague against the congregation. And how many of them died? Do you remember? 14,700 people died by a plague. What prevented from them all dying? What was the prevention measure that was taken? Unbelievable. They have just been grumbled again. They've just been, their, their authority has been defied. And what did they do? As God is passing judgment against these people, most of us would sit back and go, yeah, you missed one. <laughs> right? <laughs> There's one hiding in the bushes, Lord. <laughs> right? I mean, we would. And no, not Aaron and not Moses. They stood up and Moses directs Aaron to go and act as his intercessor. Now, if you're not kidding this, what is the picture there? Jesus, Jesus the intercessor between God's wrath and man's sin. Is that not a beautiful picture? I mean, it gives me chills when I think about it. On the one hand, the stories are, sound so harsh. On the other hand, they sound so merciful and so tender. And there's such beauty in the picture. And so what we are going to be doing, we're going to take a little pause, I think, maybe starting this week, and we're going to back up, and unfortunately we're going to spend a lot of time about these these, um, dull hearing infant babies and why they aren't ready for this mature knowledge of who Jesus is as their high priest. We're going to have to cover that first, but we're going to come back to this. So... I, you know, I can't st- more strongly even just suggest to you that go back and get a nice thorough uh, list of all the points about who the priest is and what he does for us because it's a beautiful picture of our relationship with Jesus. All right, so it's a strictly guarded priesthood. That's why God is so harsh. People sometimes look at those, those Old Testament things and see them as the harshness and the severity of God. The reason he's so harsh and so severe is because he's protecting his picture of salvation.